You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Today is February 13th, 2021. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. Today, I have two Unusually Well-Informed guests. Adam Trent was my first guest on the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast, and this is his third appearance. Adam is an IT professional in higher education. Welcome back to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me, Tim. Thank you. My other guest is Fabio Biancolin. Fabio is a professional engineer and project director. Fabio, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you. Today, Fabio, Adam, and I are discussing solar energy and electric vehicles. So we've assembled a series of articles that we wanted to explore. And the first thing I wanted to explore was this, the, the rumors that have surrounded Hyundai and Apple. And I guess the first question that I'll throw out there is, do you think, what, what should Apple's strategy be when it comes to electric vehicles? Do you think it was a good idea, even if they didn't confess to it themselves, to partner with a, an auto manufacturer and make Apple branded cars? So awkward silence there, but um, uh, let me give it a shot. So the way I think Apple operates is they in, are in a veil of secrecy. And so whenever they're working on something, you know, it, it's um, engineered to be done in such a way that they will only release the information they want people to know. And so uh, some of the things that I've read around uh, Hyundai and uh, Kia was that part of the reason why they backtracked really quickly was because essentially Apple threatened them with lawsuits about disclosing information that they weren't interested in having disclosed. But, you know, there, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory for me, pet theory. I think there is a certain amount of knowledge by Apple that some of this will get leaked. And, you know, that gets people really excited and there's momentum there and competitors start thinking about these things. And, you know, so it could be sending certain signals to their competition, to the marketplace, but it's also a little bit of the way, like the MO of Apple. And so they could still be working with Hyundai and none of us would really know the full detail of it. And so, you know, and... and it's almost to me, it's almost like them saying, hey, we're on the map and we're looking at this. Don't discount us as somebody who's not even interested in the field. That, that's essentially all that they're signaling. Who they partner with, what the, menu, what the car is going to look like or what aspect that they're going to get involved in is completely, you know, it's, it's really up to them and it's on their roadmap and we may never know what that is. That's so an interesting you, take. So you you mentioned MO, Apple's MO, and that's sort of been where I've been fixated is their MO is building things you can comfortably put on a table at an extremely high markup that is part of their ecosystem. And I, I don't really, and furthermore, it comes in a white box. It's really hard to open because you have to let the air suck out. So imagine if you had a car in a box that big, it would take you forever to open a box. Okay. All right. Um, 
So looking at those things in turn, sure, they outsource manufacturing. So people are arguing, well, what's the difference? You can outsource to Magna, you can outsource to Kia, fine. Um, but cars, you know, nobody's going to bring a car to a genius bar. They're going to have to face all the troubles that, that Tesla did and create a, either a dealer network or a maintenance network. So I don't really follow. I, I actually have a theory on what they could do. Uh, Adam, go ahead. Okay, so um, I, I'd love to hear a theory about what they could do. Um, I, you know, when it, when it comes to the technology bits, how they get there, you know, there, um, I remember a couple of years back, uh, there were a lot of uh, rumors about how Apple had this massive facility that they built and nobody knew what the facility was intended for. And so people speculated. Is Apple going to have like a movie studio? Maybe it's going to compete with Amazon and Google for cloud uh, servers. Maybe they're, you know, it's a whole new stream of business that nobody knows about yet. So, you know, again, it's a lot of speculation and it's a lot of thinking about what the potential of Apple is. And so, the 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 whole thing around what kind of technology how they're going to get involved in the in the market you're absolutely right there's so many different um factors here uh but ultimately um even if they partner up with somebody it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come up with an apple car like from from top to bottom it's it's not going to be like the the iCar i i don't know i it, they could but I'm, I'm not sure that that's the future. Fabio, so, what do you think? So, I mean, speaking of, when, when I think of Apple, when you think of their MO, and you specifically mentioned the word ecosystem, that's exactly what comes to mind when I think of Apple. They control every aspect of their ecosystem. They control every aspect of the design, the integration, all of it. And of course, their goal is always to simplify use for their end user. And they've done it extremely well with the phones, even though I'm not personally a fan, that's just me, but I, I, I don't discount what they've accomplished, right? They, they really have accomplished something significant. The, the bits that I've read about the whole, uh, you know, working with uh, Hyundai or Kia, to me, makes perfect sense. I mean, they drew comparisons to Foxconn, who they use, as you know, to make their, their phones. And when you've got a company who is so big on their brand, right? Like their brand carries weight. So if they're going to build a car, it would make perfect sense to me that they would want absolute and complete control over what happens with it because it directly ties back to their brand. So, you know, I agree. There's a, there's a healthy part of me that says, this is all just smoke and mirrors. Behind the scenes, the deal is probably still happening. They just want to throw everybody off the scent. That's one viable scenario, right? But the other viable scenario is that, you know, Hyundai and Kia says, we're not, you know, a penny anti-car maker anymore. Like perhaps we were 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever, you know, Hyundai and Kia have come a long way. Their brand is a lot more meaningful today than it was, you know, 15 years ago. And maybe they don't, they legitimately don't want to be Foxconn. You know, they want to have a, a stake in the game and not just be a, uh, you know, a Magna. So, Definitely interesting. I'm curious to see how it plays out. So I, I agree with you. I think that was actually the, the rumored motivation behind Hyundai 
coming out of the deal was, you know, we make cars with our brand. Thank you very much. And we don't want to seed. It's going to be a challenge to make these cars. Why would we, why would we make that investment and then not sell them under our own brand? So I, I agree with that. I guess um, the direction I'm thinking, and, and this is entirely speculation and, and only what, you know, if Tim was to call me, um, Tim Cook, I would say that every product they've ever produced has been adjacent to a previous product, right? So the iPhone was really just a, a, an iPod with the phone circuitry in it. The laptop is very similar to the desktop. You know, then you have printers that connect to it, but they're all sort of very, they're only one step removed from what they already do. This is a huge step removed. So if you wanted to follow something adjacent, you're already, you've already got Apple CarPlay, right? You're already in the car and people do choose their car, whether it has Apple CarPlay or not, right? If you have the phone, then you've got to get the right car to, to, to go with it. What if, um, and then if we look 20 years down the road, we're probably not, uh, Adam and I have talked about this a bit. I don't, I personally don't think many of us in urban centers will be driving. We certainly won't own a car. It'll be a robo taxi. And then what is the experience of being in a car? It's mostly an audiovisual experience. It's a convenience of what, getting it on your, you know, connecting to it on your phone, getting in it, having something to watch or entertain yourself or some work to do while you're in the car. The, the, the physical component of the car is almost vestigial. It's just a, a, a go-kart that's weather tight to take you from A to B or a, a golf cart rather. And when that happens, there's no money in making cars. There's money in making everything that goes in the car. There's no money in making movie theaters. There's money in making the, the video that goes on the screen. So why wouldn't they just license the self-driving and the, the media tech and do that for as many car brands as they can and, and become dominant in that sphere because they're already in CarPlay. Like they're, they're and, and also, uh, typical car manufacturers, unlike Tesla, struggle to integrate all the electronics in a car in the way that the future requires. So Apple could become a real useful ally for, for that type of work. Um, so you make an interesting point there, Tim, but you know, going back to the MO, you, you mentioned it yourself and you're absolutely right, which is other car manufacturers are having a great deal of difficulty integrating this technology. And it was so funny when you said that, you know, people choose their car based on what type of integration front and center. Like that's exactly what I did. Now I bought a couple of years ago because my car, you know, it was time. And um, at the time the choices were actually limited. I imagine today it's, it's, you know, the market is a little better. But I ended up narrowing my uh, my vehicle down, not on the usual criteria of, oh, I really like this one better than that one. For me, they were, they were technology choices that limited which vehicle. Number one, I didn't want a turbo because uh, I have my own thinking about turbos and maintenance. And, you know, maybe on another podcast, we can get into that angle. I don't want to go there now. But the second was I had to have phone integration because I was spending upwards of a day. No, sorry, a day, an hour hour and a half in the car on a daily basis. And I wanted the ability to, you know, send a simple hands-free text message or WhatsApp message or something to that effect, or, or, you know, make calls while I was in the car. So I could utilize that hour and a half that I was, I was in there. Of course, 
you know, fast forward 15 months and now it's less of a, less of an issue because I'm home all the time, but you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I would think that they would want to control every angle of it because manufacturers have not had the ability to really do a good job making it all work together. And I think with them taking control over it and, you know, maybe you get someone like a Kia or Hyundai to handle the, the transmission pieces or the, you know, some of those, those other components, but they handle all the tech. Yeah. Well, you, you raise a couple of interesting points. One is um, the flaw in my argument about Apple's MO is that Apple very briefly, when I was a kid, I had a, I didn't have an Apple. I had a peach. They used to license the OS so that you could run it on, on um, generic hardware. And so this was a departure from what we know today, which is they only release their software on their own devices because they like that control. They like that everything under their domain. So that is a flaw in the argument that I'm making that they should license their technology into cars as opposed to build cars top to bottom. So I do acknowledge that. And it may be that looking at a Hyundai which has some brand equity, especially in Asia, maybe not so much here, but that's all, it's continually improving. I, I mean, nobody would uh, be, be sad to get a Hyundai uh, given to them at the rental uh, counter because they're as good as any other car, sometimes in many ways better. So that's, so they've got a really good reputation. So maybe rather than going to a full OEM an original equipment manufacturer, like the, the brand name of the car, they need to go to a Magna or they need to go to a Continental or something like that. One of these parts manufacturers that are already humble in terms of brand recognition. But it's still, it just seems like such a reach to go from something that like a phone that's, that's a thousand bucks a pound to a car that if you're lucky is two bucks a pound. Like, I don't know how, how, they, can, how they can get their head around doing that business model all of a sudden. Adam, you were wanting to add? Yeah, so... I'm just trying to think about how Apple is um, looking at their competition. Of course, every corporation wants world dominance and they're going to compete in areas that they can specialize in, just, just to kind of respond to what you're saying. So when I think of Apple, Apple's competitors are Netflix, you know, the Fang companies, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Microsoft. And in each one of those, there's a different sector, right? So Netflix, it's, you know, Apple TV. Uh, same with Amazon Prime, right? Um, with Google, uh, you know, maybe it's a bit more tangential, uh, but there's there are also kind of overlaps that they compete on. Um, with, with Facebook, again, it, it's maybe it's a little bit more tangential, but really they're all kind of playing in, in a similar sphere. Now, as Tesla is coming on board, you know, they're clearly the market leader um, with, with cars. And so we're not really talking about, I don't think we're talking about um, combustion, uh, I, what, what we call is ICE vehicles, right? Uh, the inter internal combustion engine. Wh what we're talking about is the future of transportation. And so um, I'm, I'm just guessing, but my sense is that despite, you know, a 2% profit margin on a vehicle, what I think they're trying to get into is they're thinking about like the network effect. They're thinking about how do we 
continue to move into towards the future. And one of those areas is transportation. It's ubiquitous. It'll always be kind of required. And there's more and more technology that's going into it. Whether you look at, you know, maps, whether you look at communication, uh, whether you look at, you know, how goods are transported, um, you know, even like so. So there are all these underlying technologies that I think start to really work um, closely together. And, and so my sense is that I don't think they're specifically thinking about, you know, sourcing rubber to make tires and that is going to be their business model. I think they're really focused on how do we integrate? How do we can ensure continuity of our company in a world where, you know, everything is connected. And so again, that may not mean that they're going to build the next EV because they may not have expertise in that particular area. But I, I believe that they're forging ahead with integrated transportation and however that looks, it may, it may not be a car. That's, and, and but uh, granted, I completely agree with you guys. They love to control things down to the minutia. That's what they're known for. That's why their products end up, you know, having such a huge market share because they not only improve on a particular design, they like blow it out of the park. It's just like when, when it's a, touch phone it becomes a touch phone and nobody else wants you know like whatever whatever was in the past when when you had uh products like ipod ipod just blew everything out of the park with mp3 players when when you when they released a phone everybody wanted the full glass touchscreen because blackberry was kind of old school and and with every product they they just seem to make magic and Anyway, Abia, you have big thoughts, but wanted to add something. Uh, I'm, I'm digesting. I'm digesting. Okay, while you're digesting, I want to throw this out there that um, I think both of you have now pointed out that um, Apple really likes to control the whole show, and it actually reminds me of a quote from Elon Musk. Elon Musk has claimed that he'd be happy to license the self-driving technology, the battery technology, even the display technology two other car manufacturers, but he, he, in the interview, he said, that's fine, but you have to do it all the Tesla way. So he has a very similar attitude. He doesn't really care about the sheet metal so much, but all the electronics need to work together. And so um, I guess it, the, the idea that Apple has to control everything, I think maybe we need to step back and go, well, what does everything mean in this context? And it could be that we're not willing to license uh, the technology for self-driving without also licensing the technology for um, human interface, human machine interface inside the car. So the dashboard is ours as well. The, the, the circuitry to control the lights and the brakes and everything else, even the batteries maybe, that's, that's Apple. You can build the sheet metal. And I say that because yes, Apple likes to control everything, but it'll sell you a phone that goes on the, a different network. Like it doesn't own the network. It doesn't own the Wi-Fi in your house. It is able to accept a perimeter beyond which it doesn't overreach. So maybe they don't overreach into the metal, but they are they they want to control every bit of electronics within a vehicle. So I, I think that has to do with controlling the user experience, right? It, at the Absolutely. end of the day, it's all it's all about controlling that and making sure that it comes together seamlessly. And that's really where where they they took it to the next level. 
they, you know, everything works seamlessly the, the way that they tie their, you know, their user accounts and their cloud storage and their email, they, they tied all of that together seamlessly. And they were one of the first to do it. And, and I remember now what I was, uh, what I was thinking, Adam, when you were, when you were talking before, you were so mesmerizing. I just, I lost myself in thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it was, um, it was that they, they do it so well and they, they control that entire experience and they make technology accessible for the non-technical. That's really what they were the first to do, right? So, you know, you, you hear stories about, uh, you know, people maybe, I, I, I'm not, I don't mean to generalize, but, you know, maybe you, you want to get uh, your aging parents a, a phone. And so you decide, okay, let's, let's get them an iPhone because it's, it's very simple, very straightforward. You know, you're not going to run into some, uh, some of the other more technical issues on a, you know, other platforms, which might be more advanced, might have more options for the, for the techie. That's exactly what you want. But for people who just need something that quote unquote, just works, you know, Apple is definitely the go-to for that. So before I move on to the next article, let's take a bet here. I say in 2026, there's no Apple branded car. Hmm. Don't know. Don't know. Don't okay. know. Honestly. All right. You're not taking that bet. Fair enough. All right. No, well, no, you, no. Don't, don't, no, no, don't you, care, actually. I mean, whether it's Apple branded or Tesla branded or, you know, whoever decided, could be GM or Ford. Like, I'm not sure where, you know, which article we're going to next. But, you know, there's been a lot of growth in, in the uh, those car manufacturing sectors. And, you know, I, I wonder if we've hit that tipping point, but I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to that shortly. Well, I, I do think we have hit that tipping point. But the next article I wanted to bring up was... The one that touched on the sale of environmental credits uh, that Tesla's been using to keep its profits up. Uh, and you sort of teed this up, Fabio, by mentioning turbos. And my personal viewpoint on this is that we want vehicles that are cheap to operate, powerful, convenient, don't make any pollution and don't use any fuel. And we've been trying to do that with internal combustion engines and make them increasingly powerful and, and uh, smooth and responsive, but also use very little fuel. And as a result, they probably are 10 times as complicated as they were in the 80s. And so you brought up the idea of a turbo. I think that this complication that we're finding, even though we're better at making engines than ever before, I think this is sort of a death knell that the diminishing returns are so bad that, that it really is encouraging the adoption of EVs. And you can see that because car companies that are entirely internal combustion oriented um, are finding themselves have to, having to offset their carbon production by buying EV or buying credits, pollution credits from Tesla, for example. Um, I guess my first question is, a lot of the rhetoric that comes out around this EV uh, credit uh, exchange between companies is some eye rolling and accusations that Tesla would never be profitable if it weren't for this. And therefore it's all a boondoggle. Where do you guys sit on that idea? All right, I'll, I'll jump in. So, you know, a, a lot of people love to, to dump on Tesla. I, I kind of look at it like, they're the trailblazer, right? The trailblazer is the one who has to 
know, using a bad example, but you're, you're the one who has to overcome all of the problems. And, and that's hard. And that takes time and that takes money. And, you know, to, to go into a very, very large sector like autumn, you know, the automotive sector with, with dominant players who have very mature ecosystems and, and production and to go in there and try to disrupt that is amazing. Uh, it, it's so difficult. And so to think that Tesla would have to be profitable, you know, early on or out of the gate is just, it's an, it's an unreasonable expectation in my opinion. And I think it's genius, quite honestly, that they've leveraged this very big pro in their, uh, in their space, their, their uh, uh, carbon credits, uh, the regulatory credits. And, you know, they're using that to help make their business viable, right? No different than how they went out with the, uh, was it the, uh, was the Model S first, right? The big, uh, the, the super fast Model S. And, you know, it was, it was super expensive at the time. And, oh, this is, you know, who, who can afford that $100,000 a vehicle? But their model was genius, right? They're like, let me go to the people who have the money, who can, who can afford this. Let me build something amazing because it was like super fast, great performing, uh, you know, fully connected, et cetera. And we'll use that to fund the next phase. I, I don't know. I, I think it's just genius. Adam, what are your thoughts? Okay. So maybe a slightly different angle, um, but just uh, kind of riffing on what you're saying. Uh, the biggest barrier to entry, I think, is capital. And with a low margin product like a vehicle, you will run into financial trouble extremely quickly. And so, you know, that barrier to entry, the, the magic of the guy who put together PayPal and then sold it and, you know, just kind of moved on um, and was able to convince people that, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, uh, the whole idea of an electric vehicle can be a dream after we've all watched the movie, you know, who killed the electric car. Um, you, you start to have hope and you, and you start to kind of get into this whole notion and, and dream. And so you, people start to invest. And so a lot of money starts to flow um, his way. And so he begins to, you know, like fulfill that dream and, and brings a lot of people along with him. And, and I'm not sure that everybody could do this. I, I don't think it's inevitable. It, it really takes somebody who with a certain type of charisma. And I know not everybody's a Elon fanboy because sometimes the guy gets a little weird, but I got to be honest, his, his infectious kind of like desire to push and think outside the box is part of that success. And with enough money, he was able to kind of go from like, you know, the most expensive and, and uh, you know, unique to like his whole goal of trying to get to mass market. And of course, he's got to get there with some level of profitability because if they um, end up going bankrupt, then his entire vision goes away. And you know, by, by hook or by crook, he's, he's getting there. And, uh, you know, the, I think governments also realize that, you know, there, there are pressures from their citizens that we need to be 
more environmentally conscious and EVs was a really easy way of being able to sell credits. And so I'm, I'm sure oil companies don't like the whole credit idea, carbon credits um, and how you do the kind of the mental gymnastics as to what is a credit and how much is it valued at and how do you trade them on the market like that? That's a really kind of foreign concept. But, you know, somebody was able to sell that idea. And, and even if those credits go away, it continues to be a revenue stream that they were able to leverage to get past that barrier to entry, that really high capital cost to be able to be a player in the market. So they've used everything they could to their advantage to push that dream forward. And, and I, I too think that it was a brilliant way of, of getting into the market. Well, this is why we're friends because we agree on everything. Because I, I um, the way I would look at it is, Imagine if for some reason, let's say the earth was cooling and we decided we wanted to go from electric to gas. Let's imagine that future, right? We've got all this gas. We really think we should, it would be way better for the environment if we burnt all that gas. So if we were all electric propulsion, we'd all have chargers, we'd all have electric vehicles, we'd all have, there would be no muffler shops, there would be no gas stations, there would be no refineries. The cost to encourage that to be, you know, brought into being would be so expensive that no one auto manufacturer could make that transition without going out of business. And so collectively, as a society, we have to say, we know that business can't get there from here. So collectively, I realize when I say collectively, there's plenty of people who think who spit whenever they hear about regulatory credits, but there's also other people going, this should be even faster. You should do more of this. So somewhere in the middle, politicians are responding to the hue and cry, and they're saying, okay, we got to make this transition. And so when people complain about what happens with these EV or with these regulatory credits, it's like saying, well, of course, the other team won. They shot more goals in than we did. That's not fair. No, those are the rules of the game. You are supposed to reduce your pollution. And if you can't, you need to buy credits from somebody who, on average, is helping the industry pollute less. That's how it works. So I'm actually totally in favor of it. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it with this. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Adam. Go ahead. Yeah, I just I do want to mention that the electric car, the the EV that uh, Elon is pushing and everybody's kind of rallying behind and everybody's trying to catch up from the other um, manufacturers. I don't want us to forget about the fact that uh, we've been playing with biodiesel. We've been playing with natural gas cars. We've been talking about, you know, hydrogen cars. The hybrid cars have been, uh, you know, all the like the, uh, you know, braking and like recouping energy. There, there have been many different approaches to trying to reduce our dependence on on gasoline. So it, it's um, there. There's also, I think, something to be said about. Uh, there are many different options for humanity and we end up choosing a particular one for a variety of different reasons and how we arrive at that decision really plays into some of the things that you're, you're, you're talking about, uh, Tim and Fabio. So I, if I, I, I'm interpreting what you say as 
we don't want to necessarily elevate EVs as being the solution, but rather we want to keep our eyes on the prize, which is less pollution, less greenhouse gases. And so I think what you're suggesting is that, for example, hydrogen, you know, we shouldn't discount hydrogen as a potential solution. We should let the marketplace decide. So if somebody comes out with a $10 uh, fuel cell and all of a sudden hydrogen is viable, then they should get the credits and they should run away with the market. Is that what you're getting at there? Yes. Uh, and that part of the part of the whole how this happens is uh, exactly it's um, which players, which technologies and how do you how do you get there? So the fact that Elon was able to kind of muster all these different challenges together to get to the point of maybe not yet market dominance, but certainly I think he's, um, you know, 20% annual increase in revenue every year. And it's been up and down, but I, I like he's doing something right. And if there was another, you know, Elon Musk that only focused on hydrogen fuel cell cars, maybe they could do the exact same thing. So we might not be looking for a Tesla. We might be looking for something, something similar. And, and so that's, you know, not necessarily a strong point one way or the other, but, but um, I, I think that also kind of tends to the other thing that we're going to be talking about today, and that's uh, solar panels and how we collect energy. And, and you, know, you know, natural gas is one way that we obtain for fuel for our homes, and you could conceivably see that for cars, and and hydrogen could be, I suppose, another. But now we're talking about fuel sources, and and how does that all play out as far as how we consume energy? You know, what are the inputs into what we're trying to achieve? And and, and I think as as part of that, the vehicles end up being shaped. So so the, I guess all I'm saying is that there are a lot of external forces that are helping to shape the future of transportation. So um, we, we mentioned hybrids and we mentioned turbos. Um, turbos are of course a way to theoretically make an engine smaller and therefore uh, more fuel efficient. Hybrids and, and also more complex and more expensive. And it gets to the point where if you've got to have direct injection, port injection, variable compression, variable timing, very, everything's just like a Swiss watch in there. It gets to the point where you may as well just buy a ginormous battery and a cheap electric motor and it's easier. Um, but the interesting thing I heard recently about hybrids that I don't know if you've heard, hybrids are not as clean as we've been led to believe. They get 40, 50, 60 miles to the gallon, but because of the way they operate, they're always cold restarting that engine. And so they actually make more pollution than the EPA cycle is capturing because the EPA cycle is a quick hop and it tends to keep the engine on the boil at the end of the cycle, but off for the entire beginning of the cycle. That doesn't reflect a true driving experience. So there, that we may actually see more pressure on hybrids and more hybrids being converted to electric vehicles as a result. Okay, but I got to say, Tim, uh, EVs aren't squeaky clean. I mean, the materials being used in 
making a battery, mm, uh, you know, lithium ion, I, like it's not like this, uh, you know, nature loving thing that I would want to uh, drink, you know, and, and to manufacture a factory to put together a factory to make these batteries and then even to make vehicles to begin with. I mean, like, it's not a clean business. I, like, yeah, we can say carbon credits, but at the end of the day, there's still a factory, there's still pollution, there's still extraction out of the earth to, you know, do all kinds of damage in order for us to, you know, sit in a metal bucket and go from point A to point B. Like, you know, maybe the solution is trains, not personal vehicles that you know are sitting in our driveway 23 hours out of the day They're, so so I, I i hear you and and hybrid vehicles are definitely you know i i haven't read that particular article but i completely believe that they may not be as clean as we're led to believe all i'm saying is that evs are no angels but if i could just jump in for a sec so if so evs are no angels if we use the same model of car ownership that we use today, which is very aptly, as you put it, Adam, sitting in the driveway now, not 23 hours a day. Now it's like 23 hours and 59 minutes a day because of, you know, uh, you know, sort of being locked up due to the pandemic. But if you move back to that other model, which is just when I want a vehicle, I can summon one and it'll be here in three minutes and I can load my groceries or I can load my kids hockey equipment or whatever it is. And then I use that and I let it go. And so if utilization now jumps from, I don't know, 1% or 2% or 5% up to 80% because of that shared ownership model or, or that use, you know, use when you need it type of model. Well, all of a sudden now, it, it gets a little squeakier. There's a little bit of Mr. Clean on one corner of it that we can clean up and make squeaky clean. But um, but you're right. In today's model, there, there's still plenty of room for improvement. Agreed. And that is um, one of the reasons that EVs and autonomous vehicles, AVs, um, are often used in the same breath, not just because they're coming out at the same time, but also because an autonomous vehicle, the business model... Uh, encourages you to get a vehicle that will last a long time, like a million miles would be great. Whereas a car, 100, 200,000 miles is pretty good, uh, an internal combustion engine car. So the cost could be divided by five in terms of manufacturing just by that development. Um, and then this would apply whether it was an internal combustion engine or a, a, an EV. But if we get to the point where we don't have... Um, uh, personal ownership of cars and therefore personal driving of cars. I don't know about you, Adam, but when I take a cab, I don't really care if it can do a full G on the skid pad. In fact, I prefer it didn't. And so the, the car itself gets to be a lot more humble. We get to go back to 13 inch rims and, and, you know, maybe just no brakes in the front, just use regenerative braking and then have simple brakes in the back. You know, the car itself becomes a lot more humble especially if it's in a locale where it's all autonomous vehicles, we don't have to have the same crash standards. And so a car can become much lighter. Go ahead, Adam. So I, I was speaking to a friend very recently and he was showing me some pictures of a Lamborghini that he got to drive. And, you know, he's, he's not exactly slim. And he's like, you know what? That vehicle was really uncomfortable. 
it was uh, it was also really bumpy. You know, we 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 traveled at 150 miles an hour, and I just felt like I was you know riding like on, on gravel the whole time. I'm completely with you. Part of the experience of being able to go from point A to point B is, as Fabio said, be able to have an integrated experience where I don't have to deal or fuss with my phone. I want to be entertained. I want to learn something. I want to not have to feel stressed out about traffic. There are so many different aspects that could be improved about you know, the, our necessity to move from one point to another. Now, leisure may be a, a whole other piece, but we're also talking about, for example, the movement of goods. So, it, you know, as supply chains improve and as technology helps us with, with moving not just bodies, but also um, goods, that there's, a, there's something to be said about, you know, improvements in, in our comfort or improvements in speed to delivery. And, and so all those things, I think uh, technology, there's, there's a huge potential here. And we're, we're in kind of an infancy of, of that technology really helping us. I'd love to be able to sit in a car that is as comfortable as a couch. Maybe I could even lie down and take a nap. Or maybe I could watch a movie or, you know, I could listen to some good music or what have you. Fabio? So interesting, Adam, what you brought up there. So the, the thing is, the Lamborghini or, or any fun to drive type of vehicle, to me, falls under the entertainment category as opposed to the utility category, right? So you know, guilty as charged. I, um, you know, my, my, my first vehicle, the one that I owned for many, many years was very much utility, right? You know, good vehicle, solid, well-built. I mean, I'm going to stay away from name brands and such, but when it, when it came time to replace it after I, after I did my research and, and just couldn't, couldn't make the jump to EV, it was just too soon. Uh, I, my next one very likely will be, but then I went back and I got something that was, probably not as utility as it should be and it's really fun to drive and it has a bigger engine than it really needs to have but you know it's not for groceries it's for for fun it's it's part of that entertainment so you know that was an interesting story that you told about the uh the lamborghini but i i you know i i don't see many of them at the local metro is what i'm saying you know so well, I think that these Lamborghinis and the like are going to be sort of the dude ranch vehicles, right? So you're going to go to the Nürburgring and fling a classic car around and enjoy that. And there's going to be, you know, Nürburgring Vaughn at some point, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll introduce uh, versions all over the world and that'll be how we, we get our kicks. And it just like going to ride a horse. It's not for transportation. It's for whether it's recalling a, an experience from youth or, or, ticking a bucket list uh, item off. But uh, I, I don't think, I, I think as Fabio is saying, it won't be for the practical purpose. So before I leave the subject of environmental credits, um, let's do another bet. I know you guys don't want to bet against me, but I'm predicting that in the next five years, Tesla's uh, regulatory credit uh, intake will be zero because all the other car manufacturers are going to manage to keep under the limit by adopting EVs themselves. Nope. That, right. that bet I'll take. No, 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 okay. not zero. I agree that they'll reduce. 
100% with you on that. Zero is so definite. I think that the other manufacturers, you know, you said it yourself. I agree with you. I think we have reached a tipping point as it pertains to EVs. And I definitely, you know, you hear stories about GM and Ford and, and uh, Volkswagen and, and, you know, there's some Chinese brands that, that are coming up. There's definitely a lot more work happening there. But to get all the way where nobody needs any credits, like down to zero, no, that one. Sorry, Tim. I'm going against you on that one. All right. We'll talk further. Adam, what are you thinking? I'm, uh, I'm really of the opinion that EVs are going to take over. Uh, the ice is really the way of the dodo, and those credits are not necessarily going to be sustainable. Not because the industry doesn't need it, but I think because of all the other things that are happening in the world. You know, with, with limited supplies, there are certain things that I think uh, governments can invest in and, and just they have to prioritize. And so, you know, perhaps it'll be more that they're trying to put more effort into uh, solar panels and wind energy. That's where the credits are going to be. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be another form of trying to incentivize people to change their behavior, because I think climate change is going to be one of our biggest threats, not, not the future generation, but our generation. Um, you know, I, I know like, I know some people say, ah, I can buy, I can buy a, um, something in Florida because it'll be at least 50 years before it sinks. Well, I, I, I think that's happening a bit more rapidly than people think. And so we are going to be facing many more crises. And I don't want to say doom and gloom, but I suspect that EV adoption is already kind of on this like snowball effect and it's gonna happen. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that those credits are really going to disappear very quickly and we're going to start to focus on other things. So my position is somewhere, almost a combination of the two of you, because I think what Fabio, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I think what you're alluding to is product cycles, a five-year product cycle is a miracle. It's super fast and cars don't change that fast. But what we're seeing in the industry is that companies that need EV credits or, or regulatory credits are merging with companies that have regulatory credits. And so it becomes a zero sum game. So, and also when you do that, the product mix changes very quickly because now you have more products to choose from. You don't have to create a new product. So I think it could happen faster than maybe you're speculating given car brands the way they currently exist. If I can add on to that a little bit, Tim, I've been following these uh, special purpose acquisition companies that have been really, really hot in the equities market right now. And the ones that are gaining the most traction are all the ones that are investing where there's mergers and acquisitions, where there's EV companies whether it's EV on their own, whether it's EV with ICE uh, manufacturers together, there's a lot of consolidation happening. But anytime that there's EV, all these uh, special purpose acquisition companies are getting really high valuation. And the when you dig down a little bit, uh, all the investors are making 
assumption that this particular company is going to have like 20 or 30% of the market share. And the thing is, is that there are literally like dozens and dozens of these companies. And when you go, you know, say 20 or 30 times the 20% that everybody's assuming, there, I guess all I'm just saying is there's a ton of money being pumped into EVs that like there's going to be a bunch of losers, but there's a ton of money going in. And in the next five years, maybe the technology is not going to change as rapidly, but I think we're just going to see a lot more of that momentum. Fair enough. Okay. If, if you gentlemen are okay, I'm going to go to the next article. Um, and I think we can probably deal with this one really quickly. We're only an article three out of, I think a dozen. So this one is the uh, why 2021 will be the year big automakers strike back in electric vehicles. I think we've already sort of touched on this subject a little bit. They're getting more involved um, and they're also merging. Is there anything we need to follow up on this or is it sort of a foregone conclusion that Tesla has really changed the game and companies are following in their footsteps? So I'll chime in. Um, you know, I don't know. From from my viewpoint, really, you know, the big automakers could have been leaders in this space. They could have. Why they didn't, I don't know. Adam, I saw that same movie that you did, you know, Who Killed the Electric Car? Um, you know, all of the the lobbying, the the oil lobbies or whatever. I, I don't know what the real reason is, but the big automotive manufacturers could have taken the lead in this. They've been in the space. They have the technology. You know, would they have been as cutting edge as, um, as Tesla? Probably not. But still, you know, this could have been 20 years. We, we could have been 20 years ahead of the game now. But it took, and, you know, like, I'm a bit, I'm a little bit of a fanboy of Elon Musk. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm, he just decided to do it. Right. Like, yeah, he he did the whole, uh, you know, he's, he's got a ton of cash in his pocket, but he could have just retired to the Caribbean. Right. He didn't have to do SpaceX. He didn't have to do Tesla. He just decided to do. It. He said, no, enough. Like we are going to change this. And, and that's that. And against all the naysayers and right, like his market cap now is just absurd. OK, a whole other topic on his market cap. I know it's like really, you know, through the roof and all that. But but that aside, um. However, now that those other manufacturers have finally gotten off their butts and they've started to commit because they said the market is changing, we can't ignore it anymore. We are either going to be left behind or, you know, we got to get on with it. So it, it appears that it's gotten there, right? You know, so Ford has been talking about their electric 150, right? That's been going on for a while. And then there, there's that partnership with Rivian. That's one I've been following for a while because that, um, you know, the whole concept of an electric truck is is very exciting to me. And I'd, I'd love to talk about that one some more. But you've got GM going, you've got Volkswagen going, you've got Tesla opening multiple factories. Like there's... Can Tesla keep up with the, with the combined pressure of the entire rest of the market? Can they keep up? I don't know. Time will tell. I, I will speculate on that with you. Um, the way I, so Elon Musk is famous for saying that moats are lame. 
And what I think he's getting at there is this idea that you don't defend the territory you're on because you're always trying to get new territory. And so he's he's arguably 20 years ahead of the rest of the industry. And I don't think he's just going to stay there. I think he's going to keep going ahead, even because th these companies are coming out with cars that compete with his products now and saying they'll be out in 2022, 2023. Well, what's his car is going to be like in 2023? Plus, he's got that full self-driving stuff going on. I think the, the greatest, there are two risks I would suggest that Elon Musk faces. One is, um, can, he, can he smoothly transition to a world where people don't buy cars, where it's all robo-taxi? I know that he's big on the idea of robo-taxis, but the, he, he, part of his um, approach right now is to build appealing, desirable vehicles I don't care what a, the desirability of a cab is. Is it right next to me? I don't care if it's a Hyundai or a Toyota or a Chevy. Is it there? I'm getting in it. So the the premium he can charge for his vehicles goes down when it's robo taxis. And then the the other issue is what if batteries suddenly became cheap? What if somebody comes across a chemistry or a solid state battery and all of a sudden the battery in the car is a thousand bucks? And all that muscle and intellectual property that his company has developed, well, now it's not an advantage, it's actually a weight. Those are the only threats I see to him. Now, the, on the second part, I think that because he's probably most invested in batteries, he would see that coming before anyone else. But I don't know how he survives the transition to uh, what I would call a commodity car, like this, what I've, an all-weather golf cart that I think he has to transition to putting stuff underneath the car and being happy with that. And I don't know if that that's his style. Um, but it's, it's certainly heartening to say, that I think the argument is that even if we want Tesla to have all the money in the world, um, he can't, a, a company can't single-handedly replace the internal combustion fleet in any time that we, as fast as we'd like. So it's great that other companies are coming on board. So do you have any final thoughts on this or I'll go to the next article? Sure, I'll, I'll just chime in. Ultimately, we, we still have to get over that whole um, charging station situation, right? So I, I know that it's, it's getting better and I know that, that um, Tesla specifically, I can, I think I, I know a little bit more about what's happening in that space. Tesla specifically has been very strategically opening up uh, charging stations. They're, they're opening them up, you know, quite brilliantly in places like shopping malls or areas where, you know what, I don't mind killing half an hour while mm -hmm. my car charges because I can go walk through the mall. Okay. Under normal circumstances right now, walking through the mall, not so much, but under sort of you know, what we would have called normal situations before, you know, grab a bite to eat, take a walk through the mall, I come back, my car is charged and, and off I go. But, you know, I think about, you know, if a, a good number of people, I would think have, you know, vacation properties around southern Ontario, east, north, west, all over the place. So, so what does this mean if you've got an EV? Well, first of all, you have to get there, right? So you have to be within um, the travel distance. And that's, not bad because travel distances are really improving in the EV space. So that's one. And if not, there's probably somewhere you can charge along the way if you really needed to. But now 
I, I have to have a, a charger at my destination as well as at my home. Or if I'm going to um, a, a friend's vacation place, let's say, now, you know, do they have one for me or, or do I have to rely on one being in their local town nearby? So I think we're, we're not at the point of the whole, you know, ubiquitous um, charging infrastructure yet. And I, I think, though, that um, the, the, the proliferation of more EVs is going to pull with it the charging infrastructure and vice versa. And then as the charging infrastructure grows, you'll convince more people, oh, look how good the charging infrastructure is. Now, now I'm okay to buy, you know, my risk tolerance is, I'm in an acceptable range for my risk tolerance now. And so more people will buy EVs, which will then of course spur the infrastructure to go up and then they'll, they'll feed off of each other as they go. Yes, sir. So, uh... Looking at Europe versus Asia versus North America, in Europe, there is one standard for chargers. Europe said, I don't care if you're Tesla, I don't care if you're Ford, I don't care who you are, there is one charger for all cars. So I think unless our government is able to kind of muster the, the muscle to be able to force that, you will continue to have the very problem that, that you're discussing. The other piece, this was maybe a year ago. Uh, there was an interview with a group from California on CBC. They were um, trying to convince politicians in Canada to begin planning um, road charging. So this is, um, you know, so you have on along the um, the 400 series highways, whenever there is a renovation to, you know, redoing the road that you, you through induction, you know, you, you put those channels so that if you have an electric car, it doesn't even need to get plugged in because as you're driving, it, it's getting recharged. So, but but I think that idea, first of all, is very expensive for the government. And second of all, the whole adoption rate here, uh, there's, uh, there, there are lots of different factors at play. So I think the, the issue of uh, charging is a problem yet to be solved, uh, but there are solutions on the horizon. Now, just to go a little bit further along the um, path of how come everybody has to install a charging station at their home in order to have a vehicle? Uh, and, you know, if you change your vehicle, you might have to change out your station or get a different plug or whatever. There's, there's, a, there's an added cost there. Uh, I agree. Um, I, I'm, I'm just going to go back to saying uh, I, I think EVs are still somewhat in their infancy. There, I recently read uh, how Hyundai had to recall 50,000 EVs uh, because the batteries were exploding and their recommendation to current owners was, well, why don't you park your car on the street, you know, just in case the car blows up in your garage, you know? So, so then the next question is, if I'm going to park my EV on the street, how the heck am I going to charge it? So I, I just taking your point, the charging piece has not been solved. But I am also extremely hopeful that there are opportunities and ways 
of being able to solve that problem. Agreed. I, I, I um, probably am too optimistic about how soon cars will be able to drive themselves. And when that happens, it becomes irrelevant because we won't own a car. And if we don't own a car, then we may suddenly understand the futility of a thousand of us on the 401 going in the same direction at the same time at the same speed, as opposed to using an electric bus. And so a lot of these issues, you know, like maybe there will be an Uber in Muskoka, it probably already is. Um, but that would be how you'd get from A to B, especially since you're going to have a couple of wobbly pops at your friend's cottage anyway. So um, I don't know. I don't think that's a huge issue, uh, provided we have autonomous vehicles. And even if we don't have, if we don't give up on private ownership, if the technology exists where you can say to your car, just go find a charging station and come back by midnight, um, which doesn't seem impossible. We have some, and, and if it, it has full self-driving, why wouldn't it be able to do that? So it could go into town and charge up there and come back. So you know, I, I, I'm a little more optimistic on that. Um, let me move on to the next uh, article. And um, this is why Elon Musk is wrong about LIDAR. Now, LIDAR is pretty much a universally a component of everybody's full self-driving solution except for Tesla's. And Elon Musk has got on stage several times, times and said that LIDAR is doomed, LIDAR is lame, and LIDAR is unnecessary and actually counterproductive. And I don't really follow that bouncing ball, even though I am also a big fan of Elon. My suspicion, my jaded point of view, is that he doesn't want to admit that all the cars he's ever built won't be as good as the future ones that include LIDAR. So it's almost like fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? What, what's that? The the is it the Taylor effect? What what the Osborne effect? That you don't want to admit you're coming out with an upgrade because it renders it makes people not want to buy your product now. And so, because lidar lidar you can get an Apple an iPhone 12 with lidar in it. Lidar is not a dark art anymore. It's actually a light art. Um. What happens when we have an integrated optical and LiDAR sensor that costs a reasonable amount that can be put on six points around the car? I think he's going to do that. I think somebody's going to just, they'll, they won't call it LiDAR. They'll call it active optical or something, and they'll, they'll let themselves off the hook. What do you guys think? Me? All right. So, so interesting. I, I like this topic. And my take on LIDAR is what I understood from the argument he was making, and, and I could be wrong, apologies if I am, but what I understood was that he was relying more on, on cameras and um, you know visual image detection because LIDAR can tell you that something is there, but it, it probably won't do a great job telling you what it is, just that something is there. Now, whenever I think of... Um, of uh, autonomous driving, self-driving vehicles. And I, I do believe that you are overly optimistic, Tim. Sorry about that. I, especially in, in the Northern part of North America, you know, maybe in, you know, Nevada, Las Vegas, where, you know, they don't have to contend with snow, ice, some of these things that alter our roadways regularly. Um, you know, you know, maybe, maybe you have a better chance down there. Up here in Canada, 
for four or five months of the year, I'm not sure I would get into an autonomous vehicle just yet. Okay, so back to LIDAR. Back to the point of the fact that can LIDAR detect the difference between the curb or the puffy snow that's on the curb, right? And, and I think that's where the real limitation comes from and why the argument is being made that image um, detection, image analysis can look at that and say, well, the stuff that's on top is bright white. The stuff that's underneath is a little bit not so bright white. That's the curb. That's the snow. Now I know how to behave. Now, have they gotten there? Clearly not. I mean, Tesla's had some accidents, which I imagine we'll get to at, at some point. But that's that's my my starting take. Adam, what do you think? I may not be, I, I'm not qualified to talk about this. <laughs> I, you know, I, I get confused about infrared versus LIDAR uh, versus sonar. So I'm not, um, I, you know, whether- well, let, me, let me nerd out a little bit and tell you what help, little help I me. do know. Help me out, okay? yeah. So radar is radar detection and ranging. So you, you send out a radio beam and it comes back and it tells you there's something out there that you're getting an echo from. And so you can not only tell that something's there at that point on your screen, if you will, but also how far it is. Well, LIDAR is the same thing, but it's using light. Um, not visible spectrum, but usually I think it's infrared. And you're basically creating a point cloud that describes the world around you um, as, as th points around the car that could include trees, curbs, other cars, and also, if you're just like radar, you can usually tell if an object's in motion, because I imagine there's some Doppler effect that you could take advantage of. So you not only know that there's something uh, coming or there's something in front of me, but it's actually coming towards me. I need to be evasive. So what, what Elon is hanging his hat on is, is uh, there are three detection technologies in Tesla's. There's uh, your... your um, Ultrasound, which is for do I am I gonna am I about to hit something with my bumper? It's very close range, and then you also have radar, which is typically in your um, uh, cruise control assist, your 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 smart cruise control. It, it can actually do the ranging, and also I think it takes advantage of Doppler to know the speed of what it's converging with. Um, but it uses optical for almost all the sense making of the world around it. And it's all through inference. And it gets into what Fabio has explained to us about AI, which is that you, you collect data, you, you compare what the system was assuming with what actually came to be, and you constantly refine your model. And so eventually, theoretically, optical recognition could detect curbs, snow, black ice, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I guess the reason I I don't believe Elon when he says that he wouldn't use LIDAR even if it was free, that's where he loses me. I think that's hyperbolic. I think what he's saying is it's not worth the price or it's not worth the extra burden to the full self-driving computer to calculate all this stuff that you can infer from optical viewing. He's also, I think, making the argument that if we can, if human beings have been driving for a hundred years with nothing but optical, then theoretically the roads around us contain enough information for the computer to drive optically. Okay, fair enough. But why not make it better? Why not introduce the extra degree of certainty that comes with LIDAR, especially as LIDAR is coming down in price? That's, that's where I part ways with Elon. That's all. 
So, so you know, I, I, I think I'm unusually uh, well uninformed about this topic, but I, I keep struggling with this uh, on, you know, let's take a look at, so LIDAR is essentially using lasers, right? Yes. So, you know, you know how some people have a fear of Wi-Fi because they think that it's essentially like radiation, but fact of the matter is, is that the, the range or the wavelength has absolutely no impact on, on, on humans. Well, uh, I, I still think that, you know, if we're talking about shooting lasers out of a car and, you know, maybe the setting is set to stun, I have a bit of a fear about the fact that, you know, maybe getting laser all over my body is, is not a good thing. And then when you have, you know, all these different vehicles shooting lasers at each other, maybe something's going to get confused. Um, what if I'm wearing, um, you know, a reflective jacket or what if I'm wearing something that is completely like absorbent of light and maybe, so maybe like a camera, that is capturing what it's seeing and then trying to uh, understand that it, it's a different approach than, you know, shooting lasers and then trying to see what comes back. I, I, I mean, again, I'm not at all, I'm not the guy to talk about this, but I think there's, um, there has to be a lot more education to the public about why, like what are the merits of, of LIDAR? Uh, and, and, and then I'll, maybe I'll have a better conversation next time, but sure. Well, point, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the laser itself. My understanding is it's in the infrared spectrum. And so it, basically it is heat. If you've ever stood in line waiting for a burger and you've, you've had a heat lamp in your field of view, you're probably getting hitting, getting hit with a hundred times as much radiation of the same kind. If you've ever used a remote control to control your TV, you are beaming infrared around your living room. The reason I'm sanguine about this is that um, one of the great challenges of running an electric car is to use a minimum of electricity, that you want to devote it to uh, the, your traction motor, not to all the ancillary systems like your LiDAR. And so probably they're using extremely small amounts of power and extremely sensitive uh, sensors. So I, I'm not, I, I do understand, you know, my dog sits by the road and, and all these Teslas have blinded my dog. I, I get it. Or even just walking around downtown, you're being coated with these things all the time. So I, I do understand that the, the reaction, but I think that we've had enough experience with, with infrared not to highlight that. I'm actually more concerned about the radar. Um, every time I get into a blind spot of a car and I see that little yellow light come on, I realize I'm being bathed in, in radar. <laughs> And I actually back out of the way. So, you know, I understand the concern. Um, you also raised a point about different clothing and different um, objects being difficult for LiDAR to pick up. I'm, I'm not proposing to give up cameras in favor of LiDAR. I'm just wondering why we wouldn't allow for the possibility of using both. It seems like an advantage. Yeah, the two together. Um, Fabio, any last thoughts on this? Uh, no, not sure. Not sure. Uh, the idea, you know, being, being an engineer, we, we always plan for, you know, three times safety, right? You know, so if, if I can have three ways of making sure that I'm not going to, you know, crash an autonomous vehicle, the engineer in me says, yeah, absolutely put them all in there. Let's, you know, but there is, 
there is complexity with that, right? Like you mentioned, there's complexity in, okay, I got to do the image processing and I've got to do the LIDAR processing and I've got to do, let's say a third version of that processing. And I've got to somehow take that and reconcile it and make sense of, of all of it. And if it doesn't all reconcile, what do I do? Do I, do I stop? Do I, you know, and, and what margin of error is good enough that I can say, no, 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 everything, I'm still within tolerance, keep going. So I think there's complexity there. And, you know, I guess, you know, what Elon is going for, because, you know, because I can call him on a first name basis, because, you know, he and I are pals. Just joking, he and I are not pals. But Elon, if you want to, please. Yeah, yeah, give me a call. Hit, hit me up if you want to. <laughs> um, I think what he's going for is, you know what, I'm going to do one thing and I'm going to do it so well that I don't, I don't need these other backup systems and I don't need LIDAR. And I, I don't need any of the rest of this. I'm going to double down on just get the image processing right. And so I, I think that's what he's, he's going for. But the engineer in me says, if you can build in a safety factor, go for it. Agreed. Okay, so um, let's move on to solar. We don't have a lot of time, but let's start talking about how we generate the electricity for this electric vehicle future. And I'll, I'll position the discussion. Um, I Unfortunately, after I prepared the list of uh, articles we were gonna look at, I watched an Engineering Explained video. I don't know if you're familiar with that YouTube channel, um, but he's, uh, he's a car enthusiast and he really gets into the nitty gritty of how cars work. Uh, it's a great channel. He had one recently where he, he speculated on, okay, if tomorrow we said we were gonna transition to EVs only, what does that mean to the amount of electricity we would require? And it penciled out to an additional 25% of what's currently being used. This is in the US, but I imagine it's similar in Canada and probably Europe. So a 25% jump sounds like a lot. Um, and it, it, but bear in mind that from, I think it was from 1960 to 2000, it went up uh, tenfold. So it's not unreasonable to think we could expand the network 25%. He gets into the complications of, you know, how fast is a vehicle charge? You could still burn out uh, the connection you have. You can still throw a fuse uh, or overload the network, even if the power was available to be generated. These are, I think, relatively straightforward problems. As, in, as Fabio, as an engineer, as you point out, we, we went through the same transition with refrigeration and air conditioning and all of this. We found a way to deliver more electricity. The question becomes, where does it all come from? So solar is, um, I don't know, a, a, a bright hope. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about some of the... Um, I, I put these things in an order, but I really kind of want to get to the last article, which is um, Warren Buffett and the the sort of um, limitation or, or or the battle between the rooftop solar and the utility type of solar. Um, Fabio, I see you nodding. Do you have have you formed some thoughts on on that battle and what the future holds there? So so that's an interesting one. Again, I've been following what Tesla proposed for rooftop solar and I, their power wall, I think was the name of the product that they had where you had a, a battery in your home. And, and the idea was to minimize your dependence on the grid to the point where, you know, you could, you could populate your own local storage in your home and then whatever you were lacking, you know, like maybe you got to a really, um, 
peak moment where you had a lot of different appliances going and you needed some extra and you could pull that from the grid. So I've, I've been following that for a long time. And I got to tell you that the vision for that, I love it. Again, I know it's my my Elon fanboy coming out. Now, the the Warren Buffett situation was was an interesting one. The 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 two sides of the argument, I, I think, I think we should start by establishing the sort of the facts of the situation and yes. I don't have them all, but let's, let's put out what I think I know. And I would love it if you guys could correct me if I've come up short. So there were government regulations that were mandating that the utility company had to buy solar energy, that, oh, sorry, energy that was produced locally. So local solar installations on homes at a particular, um, cost per kilowatt hour. I think that's what it was. And I, I think what Warren Buffett lobbied, I, I believe, or, or he had the utility commission review was, well, why do I have to buy it at this higher rate? Like if I can buy it from the state next door for half the cost, you know, why are you mandating that I, that I buy this? I think is, is that the crux of, of what we're talking about? Yeah, that was my interpretation as well. I think that the original uh, expectation was that a customer could sell electricity back at the same price that they pay for it. And that would be the retail rate. And what Buffett argued was it should be at the wholesale rate because it's an input to a network that relies on wholesale electricity, generally speaking. Right. So I guess it boils down to what it is they are trying to accomplish right i mean so so public policy generally is created to alter you know behavior or the way the way we as a society interact or you know usually that's what what policy is for so you know they implemented travel bans because they want people to stop traveling so that's usually what happens so in this case i don't know the free market part of me says that what Mr. Buffett has said makes sense. You know, he's saying like, why, why am I doing this? But if, if the driver behind that policy is because we want to change the way we live, we want to change the way our society is built. We want to, we don't want to rely on two States over energy coming from two States over through a grid. We want to sort of develop local energy to become more self-sufficient. Well, then that requires investment. So, I see both sides of this equation and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd love to hear what you two fine gentlemen have to say. Um, so the, the, I agree with you that we need to keep the, our, our eyes on the prize. So what are we trying to do? We are, it sounds like the idea of having home-based solar has two merits. One is, as you say, it's local and therefore it improves the stability of the network. Theoretically, there's some arguments against that too, because the utility providers are like, I don't need solar in the middle of the day, but that's the only time I get it. And so it actually reduces the stability of the network. That's We'll, we'll set that aside because there are solutions to that. There's batteries and everything else. But we want we want resiliency, which means local production. And we also want production that doesn't harm the environment you could argue panels are not easy, not easy to produce, but setting that aside, they last long enough that I think that's not really a primary concern. The fact is we're not burning coal. We're not burning uh, natural gas to make our electricity. That's a good thing. And then you have 
what's happening between Elon, another competition between Elon and Warren right now is that they're both vying to, to create the world's largest centralized solar installations. And so then it becomes a question of, are, are, we, are we just against centralization or is it really about carbon? Are we really, if we're really concerned about carbon, then maybe utility-based production at a centralized facility is a good way to go. Um, and the other, the final, the final wrinkle, I guess, is that these these are are monopolies, right? Generally speaking, you can only buy electricity from one place. So the government has every right, I think, as a representative of the people, to set the rules. And so. I don't have any objection to them saying you have to accept uh, solar from the rooftop at, mark, at at retail rates because we want to encourage that as a society. Fabio, you wanted to add something? Yeah, the point you made about resiliency is fantastic. Love that because you know single single point of of contact, single point of failure, right? That that whole concept of you know a large utility or a large um, large, let's say it's take, for example, a large solar farm that gets hit by a, uh, you know, an unexpected storm of some kind and, and half the panels get trashed. Nobody could have seen it coming, but now all of a sudden, you know, look what's happened. So half of our production is gone. Whereas, you know, if, if you take that distributed model and you spread it far enough now in small pockets, I don't, I don't know how useful it would be, but if this became the norm, like every home, has a roof on it. Like it's just, it's there already. So why not leverage that? Why, why take up, you know, um, you know, acres and acres and acres of land to, um, to put up the solar farms. Now, now maybe, you know, there are other arguments, I guess, you know, if you, if you manage it centrally, you could get more efficiencies out of it. There's less, uh, less maintenance on the network, but if you, if you distribute that network far enough, minor failures so for example um you know that using that storm scenario i just described um, um, a storm that went through one particular area would only have affected homes in that area and and the rest of that resiliency network is still up and running and doing fine i think the the key issue that you hit on is storage right it's about i need to I need to collect it when I can collect it and then use it when I need it. And that always comes back to storage and whether that's a battery or whether it's some other uh, technology, uh, that is definitely something we're going to have to come to terms with. And I, I really hope there's some, you know, magic battery technology around the corner. That would be a great problem for us to have to deal with. Adam, are you, uh, what are you thinking on this? I'm, I'm still trying to collect my thoughts. I, I I should have done a bit more homework on this, but um, here here are some kind of uh, some some knee jerk reactions. So one is that um, you know the whole Warren Buffett versus Tesla versus the U.S. government. Um, that's there are um, political um, forces that are a little bit different than, for example, in Canada. For us, one of our major exports to the United States is energy. And so we have a vested interest in, you know, if it's not going to be oil, it's going to be all the hydroelectricity that we pump over to our um, neighbors in the South. And so um, we, you know, we may say, yes, green is best, 
um, and hydro could be considered um, as uh, green energy. But again, we have a vested interest in keeping somewhat of a status quo because uh, we're net exporters of energy. Now, when you're talking, so when you're, when you're talking about that model of um, electricity production, inevitably for me, the, the main thing that comes into play is that levelized cost of um, ener energy production. And, and so, you know, you take in the capital um, inputs and then, you know, over a certain amount of time, you, you, you look at the operate, operating costs and what the output is and, and you end up with like a certain amount of money per, per, per kilowatt hour. And the, the whole thing that's happening with solar is that that cost is dropping like a rock. And there is a theoretical physical, like a physics uh, limit to how um, efficient solar is. But the only reason we're having this conversation is because there was a momentum to get that kick started. And how did that happen? Well, the mic in Ontario, the microfit program meant that, you know, early adopters got 70 cents on, on the watt or the kilowatt. Whereas, you know, we're paying 15 or 20 cents in order to consume. So where did the, that difference come from? Well, it was from taxpayers. So naturally the government incentive is not because they want to reward, you know, a particular industry or a particular company. It's because they're introducing protectionist measures because they want to bring an industry from its infancy into the mainstream. And the only way they can really do that is through policy and incentives. And, and so, you know, when you look at hydro continuing to exist, when you look at wind energy being a really, really competitive um, uh, producer compared to nuclear and coal, and when solar has been just like really improving in its uh, efficiency, you have a really good mix of different energy sources. And, and so the cent so, so um, when I think about, you know, like I, I love that comment of how engineers think about three different ways to ensure safety. You, know, you can apply something similar to energy and maybe this is a stretch, but you know, um, there's there's only so much sunlight in the day, but wind can occur at night. And so if you have a mix of hydro and wind and solar, all of a sudden you have a like a, a lot of different redundancies. And and I know this is something that you guys have, have talked about. So so may, maybe I'm regurgitating to a certain extent. But when I think about the centralized versus decentralized model, I think about what's happening right now with with um, uh, distributed applications in the technology space. So, so, you know, traditionally the three of us have grown up with um, uh, mainframe servers serving up an application. And then, you know, in, in the past uh, couple of decades, the cloud has become the next big thing. And now we're on the cusp of decentralized application, distributed um, application delivery. And it's all about moving away from the cloud and moving to you know, our phones and our computers, managing some of that server load. And so this whole idea, I, I think there's a bit of a trend in society in decentralization. And, and I think there, it's always a pendulum, right? Like centralization, that's economies of scale. Decentralization means there's more ownership in the particular need area that you have. And, and you can apply that concept in 
an organizational structure to, you know, how energy is produced to, you know, how application delivery occurs. Um, so in, in the case of solar in particular, um, yeah, I, I think there are merits in having both centralized and decentralized. And that model will ultimately land based on lobbyists, you know, government will and and individuals like I as an individual may not want to have solar panels on my roof, or I may be really interested in staying off grid. There are different motivators that really compel different people to vote in a certain way, set policy in a certain way, and try to lobby for certain incentives to, to steer our society. And, you know, uh, democracy is messy, and we're going to end up with some sort of a result, but there, there are so many factors at play that are influencing how our energy production and consumption is happening. So it sounds like we've come to the conclusion that there's a role for both. And I think that either as a society or as an individual homeowner, or for example, a condo building owner, you might um, be willing to pay a premium for having local generation because it gives you diversity in the case that there's a, net, uh, a, a, a network outage. Um, I, I think the thing that made me really uncomfortable about the story and kind of cast Warren Buffett in a bad light is that it didn't just put a chill on rooftop solar going forward. It, it really pulled the rug out from people who thought they could maybe offset some of their costs by putting in solar and then basically got screwed on the deal. And so if Warren really wanted to make the case that this was for the greater good, you could have said something along the lines of, and we'll grandfather in the people who've already got it for 10 years or something like that. Take the sting out of it. And then, you know, you still get the electricity. Maybe you're paying a little bit of a premium. Because um, I, I will say that my, if it weren't for that, the market forces do suggest that large solar installations, first of all, are good for the solar industry because now you're, you're selling thousands of panels at a time. And it also gives uh, the chance to optimize, you know, like if there's a way to do it right, it probably isn't sitting on top of my roof, which is probably pointing in 30% wrong direction. Um, and it's probably harder to maintain and everything. So I, I don't object to centralized solar. I just kind of object to the style of this. You know, Warren's always saying, it's crazy that my secretary pays more tax than I do. He's trying to cast himself in a good light. And then he, he really pulls the rug out from under people like this. I think that's what was disquieting to me. Um, any, so I see you guys, uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next thing. And the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is kind of a fun one, I think it's a fun one. And that is, uh, should we use oil to generate electricity? Uh, I think it's a really provocative idea, but hear me out on this. This is what I'm thinking. If we, transition to electric propulsion everywhere, there's going to be a glut of oil. And whenever there's a glut of anything, it gets used profligately, wastefully. People are going to be like, well, you know, gas is so cheap. I may as well have this uh, 10 cylinder farm truck. Uh, you know, it didn't, I've, I already own it. Sure. It makes a mess of the environment, but gas is so cheap. I don't care. And so you create this incentive for people clinging to probably pretty disastrous equipment that if it weren't for the price of oil being so low, they would switch to electric. 
So market forces being what they are, if we said we're going to use oil and generate electricity with it, that would introduce a floor to the cost of electricity. And so there would be less incentive for people to run it through cars. And the reason I'm cool with that is because when you do um, utility scale production of electricity using oil, you're going to produce far less pollution per kilowatt hour or per BTU than you do in cars. Cars are actually, you know, they're much better than they used to be, but they're actually horrible polluters compared to a production plant where you could have scrubbers and, and professional monitoring and everything else. And also it pencils out that even if you take a gallon of, uh, uh, or a barrel of oil and make gasoline out of it and put it into a car and run that car, or you burn the oil and produce electricity to put it into a, an electric car, the, it pencils out that you're actually roughly twice as good in the electric car from, from uh, what they call well to wheel than if you put it into an ice car. So anyway, I, I invite your thoughts on that. Is it heresy? Look at that. We're, we're both so polite, each, each trying, to, trying to help the other. Okay, so, so you made a very good point there, Tim. And, and the point is simply that if you, if you do decide to head down this path of burning oil to make energy. So, you know, a little bit about what I read is that you lose some of the BTUs in the, um, the gas refinement process, right? You lose about 15%, I think I, I read. And so, so you lose a little bit there, but, but as you said, the real loss is right in the combustion engine itself. You're losing something like 70% from that point for 70, 75% you're losing. So, so to the car, you know, no, no debate there. When you get to industrial, I, I guess it would be burning, industrial burning of oil. I guess the one thing I don't know enough about, and you, you mentioned it, scrubbers and such, is there a safe way to burn hydrocarbons centralized, right? In a large plant, for example, and, and capture those greenhouse gases so as not to create the harm in the environment that it would if you went the other angle down to the car? I guess that's that's the question that I have. I don't know enough about that. I'm going to assume that there is a way to do that. I'm going to assume that. And I, I know that you, know, you can always recapture. So let's assume you can recapture the greenhouse gases. I'm not sure what you can do with them, scrub them, filter them, et cetera. That's one, because ultimately you have to do something with them. But then you know you can recapture the heat, and then use that through a uh, uh, a cycle. You know you can boil water, cogeneration, turbine. Yeah, yeah cogeneration exactly right. So, is it heresy? If the business case is there, and if you can legitimately keep the hydrocarbons down, and you can take those you know cogeneration scenarios. And, and make them a reality to increase the efficiency further. I, I don't see why not, but the full stop for me is if you can't contain the hydrocarbons, like the whole reason that we're doing, sorry, not the whole reason, why we're headed towards, you know, green technologies, hydroelectric energy, et cetera, et cetera, is because of our greenhouse gas issue and all of those. I'm not gonna get into all of that. I'm, I'm not, a, a, I don't know enough about it to speak deeper, but that's, that's 
I think one of the big drivers, um, you know, climate change and such. So if you can't contain the hydrocarbons, no. If you can, if the technology is good enough, you know, it's on the table, I guess, for discussion. So let me respond to a couple of those points. Um, one is that I'm assuming that if oil is cheap, somebody's going to find a use for it for a long time. And so what I'm proposing is that we use it in a way that's relatively good. And my experience, my, my limited knowledge with power production, with combustion power production, is that you can do a pretty good job of getting rid of the nitrous oxides and the sulfuric oxides and the particulates. I don't think it's practical at a large scale to capture carbon dioxide, which of course is what we're, the whole carbon neutral idea, that's what we're trying to get rid of. Um, it's still better per mile driven from end to end with the EVs and producing uh, electricity centrally using oil than if we poured the oil, relatively speaking, into cars. Um, so I think that the, 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 the scenario, so I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking in terms of why I'm concerned that oil would be cheap. We have this dynamic around the world where some jurisdictions will say our cars don't, if you have a 10 year old car, you have to get rid of it because it's not as clean. If you don't have, you can only buy clean cars here. You have to maintain them. You have to smog check them. And then Japan sells all their junkers to Thailand and Thailand runs them for another, I don't know if it's Thailand or Vietnam or whatever, but another country, they run them for 10 years or 20 years. And they probably take the catalytic converter off because it runs better. Right. And so you wind up with this dynamic where if, if it pencils out, if the oil is cheap, people will around the world will use it for longer than we'd like. So I'm trying to find a way to put a floor under that market. Um, but here's what's really interesting, I think, is would you invest in a company that proposed this? Setting aside the black hat aspect, right? The, this idea that, oh my God, you're using oil. This is exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. But would you invest in a company that was doing this. I don't think Adam would, because as Adam points out, solar is, wind and solar are getting cheaper all the time. And so you're probably better off building a solar farm than an oil-fired power plant. Adam? So um, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to collect my thoughts in a way that are like uh, somewhat linear to what you're saying. And, and part of the reason why I'm struggling a little bit is that I don't think it's completely price-based. So uh, if we were to stop all ICE vehicles today, it's not like oil all of a sudden has no further use. There are many, many different derivatives um, that come out of oil, like plastics and rubber, and that is going to continue to exist. So I don't believe that um, the, the price of oil is going to, you know, go into that, you know, negative futures territory, um, in, in the long term. I think there's always going to be a need. And the, the thing that producers continue to struggle with is, um, you know, like oil sand, um, extraction continues to be relatively expensive and you know pollution is a byproduct so so when we're talking about prices i think 
oil, like there are going to be certain oil products, um, uh, certain oil extraction methods that are going to be viable and other ones that will not, that will force the market price of oil to remain at a relatively high level, whether cars use it or not. So, so, that I, so I think there's that thread that we could explore further. Now, on the environmental impact aspect, I, I think that, um, you know, if you were to ask the public, you know, the, you know, kind of the great unwashed, you say, let us burn a bunch of oil to make electricity, you're just not going to get political buy-in on that. And, and, and I think policy and legal and environmental um, advocacy groups are going to say, I don't care how clean, you know, clean coal is or how clean nuclear is. Don't try to sell me that oil is clean. It's, it's just, I think it would be political suicide to try to um, convince people that this is a really good idea. So, um, and, and then I think there are other, like, you know, the, the competitive um, forces that are at play, it just goes back to, you know, geothermal is also a really, you know, inexpensive way of making energy. And, and, and yet, you know, you look at, you know, like, if we're talking about climate change, if we're talking about why is it that we have EVs, why is it that we have solar panels, it's all really driven by climate change, at least in my humble opinion. And, and so the, um, maybe this is a bit of a circular argument, but really at the end of the day, um, extracting something out of the ground is, bec is becoming more and more uh, difficult to digest if we have different ways of being able to produce energy. And so, you know, like when, when we're reading about uh, Koreans coming up with transparent solar panels that you can essentially build into your phone or build into your windows. And, you know, Elon is putting solar roof panels that look exactly the same as your regular roof panels. And you've got wind energy that's, you know, producing more at a lower cost than a nuclear plant. I, I don't really see the future for burning oil in order to produce energy. Um, you know, there's, there's economics, there's environment, there's policy, there's people's will, there's, you know, um, different technologies. I, I don't care how clean it is. I'm, I'm not sure I'd buy it. Uh, Fabio, do you want to bring that home or should I go to the next article? Oh, no, I'll, I'll bring it home. So Adam, I agree with you hundred percent. The, the point that Tim made though is um, the world is more than just us, right? The, the way that we think and the way that we um, want our, our government, our, our society to move forward. And, you know, I, I think I was trying to think a while back when, when there was a, a big push to eliminate um, coal plants around the world and some developing economies you know, the, the argument that was made in retort was, well, wait a minute, you know, you burned coal for a hundred years and that's how you got ahead. Now it's our turn. Like we need to develop and we need some mechanism to do that. So there will be a market or an economy that will say, yeah, if, if I can get BTUs 
you know, whatever, be them uh, electrical heat, whatever it is, if I can get those cheaper and I can bring some either prosperity or comfort to my population, to my, to my people in my country, you know, why wouldn't I do that? And given that the rest of the world isn't using it, you know, it's really not that bad because we're, you know, we're so much further ahead. So I, I guess there is that. And, and you know what, there's merits to both sides of the equation. You know, we are fortunate. We live in, we live in a wonderful place and, you know, we, we have the ability to, to think that way. But if, if we were in some of those other places in the world, you know, we might have that angle as well. Yeah, That's my, well, my two cents there. We'll have to keep an eye out. Um, it's funny that, that, uh, so many places in the world where it's easy to get oil, it's also easy to get the sun. Uh, so, you know, the Middle East has abundance of both uh, and, and certainly parts of Africa as well. Um, and there's an article that talks about the impact of solar. Um, you know, the, the, a natural uh, sort of reaction is, oh, there's a desert. Let's just put a whole bunch of solar panels there. It makes perfect sense. You've got no rainfall, so you've got excellent sun coverage. But there's actually a potential climate impact from that. And the argument here is that if you, they talk about something called albedo, which is basically a fancy word for how much something reflects light. So you take sand, which probably reflects a good 50% of the light, and you cover it with solar panels that absorb 80% of the light, you're going to have more heat trapped. And if you do this at scale, you can actually have um, environmental, you know, continental uh, impacts on the environment, on, on precipitation and the like. What's your reaction to that? So uh, when I read the article about, you know, if you're going to cover the desert in 25% in solar panels, and uh, okay, you know what? Yeah, maybe we're going to need to increase our uh, consumption of electricity by 25% if we're all driving EVs. But 25% of the of the desert covered in solar panels. I mean, we're talking a little bit extreme. And it, I think the article was a little bit alarmist. So, you know, they, they were going on this tangent of like, well, the first effect is that it creates humidity and all of a sudden there's vegetation that starts to grow. And well, maybe that's not a problem. Well, of course it's not. That's actually a net benefit. Like in the desert, you want a little bit of vegetation to start to grow. And, you know, when you start to get foliage, then you get like, I, I, I don't think, I think that article was really trying to provide facts and be really balanced. But to me, it came off as, um, listen, here's a really good idea, but there's lots wrong with it. I'm, I'm, I, I just, uh, I'm like, okay, let's say, so fair enough, maybe in the desert, if you cover the entire desert in solar panels, it, it's going to get hotter. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. But if we're looking at, you know, in our own little bubble, most of the roofs are dark and they absorb a lot of light. And now if you put in a solar panel on a dark roof, I don't think you're really changing the dynamics of how you know, the like solar heat is going to affect our particular climate. Um, so I'm, I'm, I really struggled with that article's um, uh, sense to say, if you have too many solar panels, it's bad for the environment. I could buy the argument of 
it, you know, the, the manufacturing process or the cost of materials, or maybe, um, you, you know, maybe there are some other um, impacts, but what the article was trying to say about heat, yeah, um, I'm not buying it. Fabio, what do you think? So, you know, a healthy amount of skepticism is a good thing, Adam. I, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump down another avenue. I'm going to say, let's assume that the science in the article is correct. Let's assume that if you covered 50% of the Sahara Desert with solar panels, it would lead to a, you know, a global increase of half a degree and a more localized two and a half degree. You know, let's just assume for a moment that it's accurate. Let's, let's say that the scientists were, were, uh, were thorough. So, so my thought to that is, well, then just spread it around. Like, just don't do all 25% of it there or 50% of it there. Do, do 15%, 10%, you know, um, spotted out throughout the Sahara. And, and Adam, I agree with you, you know, if you're going to get some moisture and some foliage in a desert, yeah, it's very difficult for me to see that as a bad thing. I mean, I know that the article itself talked about that there could be some bad there, but, you know, we have lots of, uh, lots of large desert regions um, around the world and, you know, just speckle them out a little here, a little there. And, and maybe it makes more sense if you were doing a, a large solar farm, a 20% size solar farm in one place because you, you know, you minimize construction costs, you minimize transportation costs because you're doing everything on one site. Well, if the science is right, then let's find something that works so that we don't end up, you know, melting the polar ice caps even faster than we're doing it already. And it was interesting, this, this whole uh, piece in the article about dark water, I had to look that up. I didn't even know what dark water was. And uh, for those who don't know, like I didn't, when you when you're melting um, sea ice, when you're melting, you know, the polar ice caps, it exposes uh, more water, which, if it's deep, is dark and therefore absorbs more uh, more solar energy, thus uh, speeding the process along. So I, I didn't know what that was, but I would say, you know, if you can't do 25%, then do 15. And if the scientists still say, well, 15 is still too much, fine, do 10, and then go do another 10 somewhere else to minimize the overall impact. But I don't think we should be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, because of the reasons that they've cited in the article. Let's, let's find, let's take that positive attitude and find a way to make it work. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Fabio, especially since we don't build all 100% at once. You know, we would have plenty of time to react if it turned out to be true. And what's telling about this article is they're like, on the one hand, we might wind up with lots of uh, 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 foliage. And on the other hand, we might desertify the whole continent. We're not quite sure, but either way, it's terrible. Um, why don't you just put some and see what happens? And then furthermore, if you look at, um, I forget where this was, but I've actually seen solar installations in pretty arid areas that created shade where vegetation could take hold. And the problem they had was that the vegetation was growing so tall, it was shading the, uh, the solar panels. And what they did was they just got goats to, to go through there and eat the grass and keep it down. And so they wound up with an ecosystem in there. And that has to be better for the air and the, and the flora and fauna than, than desert. 
And so it seems I'm actually more hopeful. I think that maybe with a little, little clever introduction of the right types of, uh, you know, there are efforts around the world in China, for example, to de-desertify places, um, de-desertify. I don't want to eliminate dessert. Um, and, and, and they're getting some headway by introducing the right plants and, and you know, not disturbing the cycle and everything. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I think, um, I think we could try it a little bit and see which, which calamity will befall us and then react accordingly. Better, better that we head towards calamity by taking some kind of positive action than to just let it happen to us. So gentlemen, let's go to a last article. Um, we've got through almost all of them. I was wondering if we could end with the one about BMW sourcing aluminum produced with solar energy. Do you want to look at that one? I actually was really hoping you were going to go to the one about uh, the solar project in Gaza. Oh, okay. Let's do that. Lead, lead us in. What's that about? So what I read is that there is a, a cutting edge solar uh, project underway in uh, in Gaza, and they're they're doing it to target the fact that a lot of people there don't have access to reliable power. So the underlying reason is good, and that's fantastic. And I, I don't want to downplay that. What actually excited me about this article when I did uh, a little more research about solar energy, and I I, I learned about um, you know solar panel efficiency and such, and how they're only about twenty to twenty two percent. Like twenty two percent is the upper end of efficiency that you can get out of solar panels these days. Well, this, these, uh, these engineers at, uh, from a, a university in the UK found a way to put two technologies together. And that is, um, so uh, apologies if I get this wrong, the Rankine cycle. Did I pronounce that right? There's a Rankine, Rankine. I've only ever read it. That's the okay. sign of an intelligent person that we're willing to use a word we only ever read. Okay. And, and so, again, for those who didn't know, I, I had to look this up. I understood it. I just didn't know the name. And it's when you, uh, you, know, you do things like, like boil water. If you have excess heat, you can boil water, which then the steam turns a turbine, which then generates electricity. So the idea here was with these solar uh, panels, you have all of this heat, just like we were just talking about in the last uh, little segment here about the Sahara Desert. You have all this extra heat, but it's not enough heat to boil water. Well, so what do you do? Well, what they did was they, they, their process is called an organic Rankine cycle. And rather than using water, they used a different fluid that has a lower boiling point to run that cycle. So they could use the heat from the solar panels to heat up this liquid to generate a vapor, which they could then use to generate more electricity using a turbine, thus recapturing some of that heat, which is so exciting because this could be one of those breakthrough areas where solar, once you co-generate using you know, another technology to go with it, all of a sudden 20% becomes 40%, becomes 50, becomes 60%. And, and look at that, all of a sudden we've got you know, huge gains. Thanks Fabio. Adam, do you have any thoughts? Okay, well, I just wanted to, to pick up on a couple of things. Um, it, it, well, I think the primary point here is not just the cleverness of the system itself, but also the fact that it really speaks to what you and Fabio and Adam, Adam were talking about earlier, which is the advantages of solar, which is it's kind of a pop-up installation, right? You can have solar in your backyard. You can have it for a village. You can have it for an entire city. You can scale it. Uh, it's much easier to scale. It's much more modular. 
So that's pretty exciting that it's able to, to deal with situations where you have parts of the world that are war-torn and don't have good infrastructure and still you're able to meet the needs. So people don't have to burn wood in their home or candles for light at night and run the risk of fire and cataracts and the whole biz. So that's great. The, the whole Rankin cycle thing, um, I don't know. The physicist in me assumes that the amount of heat an area would absorb is proportional to the albedo of the panels. And it doesn't matter if you make electricity or if you make um, heat, which then generates electricity. Eventually, when you use that electricity, you wind up with all the BTUs you absorbed with the panel to begin with. So the reason I bring that up is I thought to myself at first, oh, well, that's cool. We could deal with some of the heat in the Sahara by using this Rankin cycle under those panels. But I think in the end, because the input is solar and because you're accepting more solar because you have black panels instead of yellow sand, that you wind up with a greater load. So that's something to watch. Um, but I, I, And I also wonder if this Rankin cycle is cheaper than just buying two panels. Like if, if your objective is to improve the efficiency of a panel um, and the panel is a hundred bucks and the Rankin thing underneath is 150, it just doesn't make sense to me. Just have two panels. Or is the concern you don't have enough room on your rooftop? Yeah, that's, I, I would say when I was looking at solar for my home, I was looking at maximizing production on a per square foot. So to me, the capital cost of purchasing solar panel was less of a concern and efficiency was more of a concern. And so, and so if, you know, I can have increased efficiency on a per square foot basis with this, uh, with this model of, of combining the ways of electricity, I, I, I think that's the winner. And I, I know at the end of the day, it's all about cost, but uh, uh, just it, maybe it doesn't matter in the Sahara where, you know, real estate is a little bit less of an issue. That's true. That's true. Well, on that note, that, uh, that I'll have to think about that when I think about where to retire and whether I'm being displaced by solar panels. Uh, Let's end there. I want to thank Adam and Fabio for being my guests today. It's been a lot of fun, Tim, Fabio. Thanks so much for the uh, insightful conversation. I'd love to do it again. Really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. Ditto for me. A lot of me fun, too. a lot of great viewpoints. Even when you disagree with me, Adam, I still, still love hearing what you have to say. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tim. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Any articles we mentioned will be in the show notes, along with Fabio's and Adam's contact information. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation.